Well, it is a deep joy to be with you today. I've been uh, following along with uh, the activities here at the seminary over the last week, especially your day of prayer on, uh, on Monday. I applaud your president for setting aside that kind of time for the Asbury community to immerse themselves in prayer. It's, it's I think, typical of this community, but it is so atypical in the rest of the world. And so I congratulate you. I, I have been so grateful over these uh, years for the leadership of uh, Tim Tennant and Julie as they have uh, brought their leadership skills here to Kentucky and have shared them with us. Uh, it's, uh, it's always a privilege to be here in chapel, and I'm so grateful for the leadership that Jessica and, and Nathan give to this place. I'm grateful for the faculty here, especially today for my friend Bill Arnold. I was telling the... Uh, group just before we came in today that uh, Bill and I were ordained together. We knelt side by side in 1978 and were ordained into the church. I, I laughingly tell people that I knew from the very beginning I was not the smartest guy in the room. That's <laughs> the way the Lord humbled me in the very beginning. But Bill and I have been walking this journey for a long time now together. And um, he will actually lead our Kentucky Conference delegation to general conference here in a few days. And so I, I hope you're not only lifting me in prayer during that time and all of those who are there, but especially uh, your colleague, Bill Arnold, who uh, is a significant leader in the life of our church. So grateful for the trustees, uh, Karen and my good friend, uh, Bishop Al Gwynn, who are here today. And uh, for Dr. Gray, who, uh, who carries forth across the, the road here and uh, give splendid leadership at Asbury College. Thank you all uh, for what you do. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to come together as your believers to worship. Lord, I pray that uh, nothing will get in our way in hearing your word, uh, not even the personality of this preacher, and that you will hide me behind the cross so that your word and your spirit might prevail. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I am completing 38 years of active ministry this year. It's kind of an odd journey because I served as a pastor for only 16 years. And then two years as a district superintendent and now 20 as a bishop. So I've been doing a lot of prayerful reflection lately. Uh, I've been privileged to baptize and confirm hundreds of new disciples of Jesus. I counted up that I've officiated at over 400 weddings and funerals. But most extraordinary, at least from my perspective, I've ordained, with the group coming in this June, I will have ordained over 500 elders and deacons in the United Methodist Church. And I've made literally thousands of pastoral appointments along the way. As an itinerant United Methodist minister, Jennifer and I have, we've lived in 14 different houses in 38 years. Uh, moving and traveling has been our lifestyle. One day my mother came to our home and she went up to where our bedroom was and she noticed that our suitcases were there and she said, uh, with kind of a critical tone in her voice, she said, don't you put your suitcases away when you come home? And we said, no, we just reload. We, we, they, never, they never are put away. We just reload them. 
moving and traveling. That's part of the itinerant lifestyle. I've been honored to preach and teach and fellowship and learn with United Methodists all over the world. And I've been so richly blessed. I cannot imagine my life being any other way. God has fulfilled my dreams and blessed me with a wonderful family. And they've shared this journey with me. I've made my share of mistakes along the way. I have mangled liturgy on more than one occasion. I even forgot to take up the offering one Sunday, which I think is probably a cardinal sin in the church. I've dropped wedding rings. Uh, I even fell asleep one Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock worship service in front of 500 people. I was an associate pastor at the time, and the senior pastor had a rather long prayer. We'd been up with sick children that night before, and I just went out and, uh, at First Church Lexington. And uh, you know how, how it is when you wake yourself up, you know, you kind of startle yourself? And, and I didn't know how long I'd been out. And, and so I tried to play it off like I had been in deep prayer. And, but I looked down front, and uh, several of my buddies were bent over double laughing at me. And so I realized that I hadn't gotten over, hadn't gotten away with it. I even forgot during a baptism one time whether the baby was a boy or a girl. I, I, at the church I was serving at the time, we were baptizing babies every week. And uh, this baby had a nice white baptismal gown on. Uh, no blue ribbons, no pink ribbons. Uh, had, a, had a kind of a neutral name like mine, Lindsay. Uh, I think it was Kelly. And uh, I couldn't remember if it was a boy or a girl. And so I, I lapsed into inclusive language. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I thought I'd pulled it off pretty well. And, uh, and so after the service, nobody said anything. And, and I thought, well, I, I got away with it. The, the next morning, my youth minister came in and he said, I got to ask you a question. Did you forget the gender of that child yesterday? <laughs> I said, yes. And so... Then I called the couple uh, and to apologize to them. And when, I, when, when, when the man answered the phone, he started laughing. He knew why I was calling. I hadn't, I hadn't uh, gotten away with it with them either. <laughs> laughing at yourself is a requirement for effective ministry. Uh, you will make mistakes. Some will be bigger than others. But you know, God's grace is sufficient. And I have found the laity to be pretty forgiving along the way. The laity understand that the body of Christ is made up of flawed and broken people. The laity want to be led by a spiritually mature pastor, but they know that we are broken vessels just like them. Your own transparency and sense of humor will go a long way toward building strong relationships with your people. You will make mistakes, but there are a few mistakes that you must not make because your task is to keep the gospel message alive for your generation and for those who follow you. So first, you must love your people. Now that may seem obvious, but honestly, I've known a lot of pastors over the years have gotten into deep trouble because they really down deep did not love their people. And loving people is not so easy to do because the Lord will put people in your path 
who are not all that lovable at times. You are called by God who first loved you to love God's children. That's what gets you out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the hospital to be with some saint who is dying. That is why you don't give up on people who criticize you or fail you. That is why you turn the other cheek. It's not easy. But God still uses pastors to, to change the world. God still uses pastors to sustain congregations and to work out God's divine plan of salvation. Another mistake that you cannot make has to do with preaching and teaching the truth. Our text this morning hits right at that particular issue. We serve at a time when people have itchy ears. We serve at a time when people in our culture and even in our church would have us set aside the scriptures to remake or revision the faith and replace the, the classic doctrines of our church with various forms of post-Christian faith, post-Christian reason and experience. And that's why we must remember Paul's words to Timothy. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful in one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we're put together and shaped up for the task that God has for us. Friends, the Bible is God's gift to us. It is God's charter for our lives. We seek to understand the context of Scripture, but we are not free to make it conform to our human interests and our prejudices. Bishop Bill Cannon, who was one of my mentors, said it this way, We are to receive it as written with open hearts and eager minds and allow Scripture to mold us in the image of God to attempt to rewrite it or to modify it from liberal or conservative, feminist, liberationist, racist, or any other perspective not its own is the most dangerous of all heresies and the epitome of spiritual arrogance. I love the ancient warning of St. Augustine who said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you dislike, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. As a bishop, uh, I've been determined that we as a church, church would claim our home in the traditional richness of the Orthodox Christian faith. Our church has suffered immensely from an acute case of doctrinal confusion. We've not always been clear about what we believe. We've allowed our distinct Wesleyan traditions to become turned upside down and inside out or ignored altogether. So I continue to sound the call throughout our church, and it's a call for a rediscovery of the essential power of the gospel. I believe that the United Methodist Church is being tested in its faithfulness. Will we re-engage our spiritual roots? Will we keep Jesus Christ at the center of who we are and all that we do? Will we evaluate every action by the truth of Scripture rather than worry about being politically correct? Will we stop spending so much of our time and energy on the various agendas of caucus groups within our church and start focusing on evangelism and mission outreach and spiritual formation 
all of which represent the basic work of the church and the key to a faithful witness in the 21st century or any century. Our church will be renewed as we become more spiritually grounded, as we attempt to live more holy lives, and as we become more focused on mission around the world. That is the prescription for keeping the gospel alive in our day. Another mistake that you cannot afford to make is ignoring the poor. One of the greatest failures of our church during my time of ministry has been our blindness toward the plight of the poor in our own communities. I, I never cease to be amazed by the fact that we have churches in the midst of, of dense populations, often dense populations of people who are struggling financially and living on the margins, and yet our churches continue to, to ignore them and not engage them. When those of us who make up the church do not see, hear, or respond to the cries of the needy, especially the children, we fail God. If we tune out the poor, then we will ultimately tune out God. In fact, our religious practices, our worship, our prayers, our study of Scripture, I think become an affront to God if we are not also involved in acts of mercy. In fact, we need to be involved in a lifestyle of mercy. Our faithfulness as a church will be measured to a large extent by the way we identify with and respond to the needs of the least and the last and the lost. And our approach to serving the poor is crucial. The writer Chase Miller reminds us that the poor don't need our pity. They need our friendship. They are not a project to be checked off. They're not something to be totaled up at the end of the year so you can put it on your charge conference report. They need our friendship. Whether we're working with the poor in Lexington or Africa or Syria, serving with the poor is about partnership. It's about mutual sharing. Because one day, we will all sit side by side at the heavenly banquet in the presence of the Savior. And it'd be nice if we knew one another when we do. And then there is the mistake of pandering to the overchurched. Rather than having a deep passion for reaching those who are not yet followers of Jesus. I've been privileged over the last 20 years to be a small part of planting over 150 new churches and new faith communities in two different annual conferences. And now we're planting what we call fresh expressions. I think the fresh expressions movement is right on target. Uh, I wish I'd known that 20 years ago. <laughs> Making new disciples of Jesus must be part of your ministry because that passion is embedded in the heart of Jesus and the gospel. Every church can start a new faith community, a new, faith, a new fresh expression to reach the next generation. Please don't be content with serving those already in the church. Help them to understand that this gospel we preach and teach is generative and intended to be shared because that is what Jesus' followers are expected to do. I leave in just a few days for a general conference in Portland. I hope you will pray for us. Um, 
There is a prayer room at General Conference. I will be there every day at 10 a.m. to pray. And if you're there, come and join me in prayer. Trust me, the prayer in the prayer room probably will be more important than what's happening in the auditorium. (laughs) I talk to many of our clergy and our laity who are quite concerned about where our church is going and what the future holds for us. There are many voices in our church speaking about various issues, but the one that always catches everybody's attention is the issue of human sexuality. And some people talk about this issue in strong and defiant ways, and some even talk about schism. When I was consecrated as a bishop, one of the vows I took was to be a sign of unity in the church. But I know that in reality, God is our unity. God builds faith communities of diverse people who don't always agree. That's the way God made us. But I also know that God will not bless conflict and division. And if we as a church turn inward and continue to fight among ourselves, the fruits of our ministry will rot upon the tree. The truth is that the vast majority of our clergy, laity, and bishops want to stay focused on our mission of disciple-making. And some of the issues that we face at General Conference are major distractions for us. And we waste valuable time and energy on social media sites obsessing about what is happening within the connection. But using our time that way does not make one new disciple, nor does it provide any transformation in our local churches or our community. So my message these days is fear not. Have confidence that the Lord is in control. Stay focused on helping our people grow towards spiritual maturity and fruitfulness for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2004. My doctor told me I had a 50-50 chance of living five years. So to tell you the truth, um, I wasn't I didn't want to be pessimistic, but I never thought I'd reach retirement. (laughs) And Jennifer can tell you that. I thought, well, you know, the odds don't look very good. But by God's grace, I've been able to be on this cancer journey for now 20 years. Now now 12 years, rather. I'm keenly aware of my mortality. Living with cancer has taught me many important lessons. One of the most important lessons has been to value each and every day and every precious moment as God's gift to me. I think I've done that better in the last 12 years than I did in the years before. See, I don't want to waste God's gift. So my prayer each day is that I will do exactly what God wants me to do that day. It may not be on my agenda but it may be exactly what God wants me to do. I want to spend my life doing things that will make an eternal difference in the lives of the people I'm called to serve. I do not want to waste God's gift by anxious hand-wringing. And I want the same things for you. So fear not. Keep the gospel alive. Stay focused on God's mission. I am confident that the Lord will lead us through this time, and I am also confident that you're the leaders that will do it. Would you pray with me?
Lord, bless this community. Bless all the persons who are here today. What a wonderful array of gifts and graces are here in this chapel this morning. Lord, work in our lives. Help us to do your work your way. And help us to be a blessing to, to those who, who come across our path. Watch over us with your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.